just to orient you to your text, if this is your first time with us, we're going through a series through the Gospel According to Luke. This is a carefully researched first century document that, uh, that goes through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. It's based on eyewitness accounts, early written documents. And Luke tells us that he writes this gospel with a very particular focus in mind. In chapter 1, he writes that he's writing this so that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. He writes this with this particular aim in mind, that he wants to build in strength and faith in Jesus Christ. He wants his readers, whether they are ancient readers or modern readers, to know that God's mission to undo sin and the effects of sin uh, and, and all of sin's deadly consequences in our world that it's being accomplished through the life, death, resurrection of, of Jesus Christ. And so this afternoon, we're in Luke chapter 3, and the setting for this is we're on the banks of the River Jordan. Uh, we've been observing the last couple of weeks the ministry of a figure named John the Baptist, who's kind of a precursor, someone who's preparing the way for Jesus's public ministry. So far, we've only met the infant Jesus, the boy Jesus, and now, uh, pretty much for the first time, we meet the man Jesus um, and so, again, directing your attention to the back middle portion, we'll read the text that the sermon's based on. Now, when all the people were baptized, when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Helah, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Ezlai, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joannan, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosum, the son of Elmedum, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Jorim, the son of Mathet, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonan, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meliah, the son of Mena, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nahashan, the son of Abinadab, the son of Admin, the son of Armi, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mehalit. Lalil, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word for us. 
that, that this word given to us uh, has been spoken by you for our good and for our salvation. Pray that by your spirit we would hear your voice this afternoon. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, genealogies are really interesting portions of Scripture, um, uh, something that Bible readers tend to skip over <laughs> when, when they come across them. Um, our Bible reading plan, our church, a couple of our members are going through the Bible systematically over the next couple of months, and this has been the season of genealogies. We've been in Ezra and Nehemiah and Chronicles, and so just page after page of names and lists of people. Um, I, I don't know how well I did you know, going through this. I'll listen to the recording, but as long as you say it quickly and with some measure of confidence, you're fine. That, that's all you need to do. Uh, our conviction, and, and Christians through the ages, the conviction is that uh, the whole Bible is God's word for us. Uh, the Apostle Paul, he writes to his, to his young friend Timothy, all Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so it, it perhaps requires uh, faith to believe that even lists of names recorded here in Luke or, or other books of the Bible, that that too is God-breathed, that somehow this is profitable for our faith. In His wisdom, God knows we need even genealogies so that we can be mature in the Christian faith. Two quick points about genealogies. We won't spend our entire time in the genealogy, but the first thing that a genealogy tells us is that the story we're reading is based in real history. Uh, there's a story uh, that comes from the Wycliffe Bible translators. This is a, a mission in the Christian church to go to every tribe, tongue, and nation and translate the Bible into the native tongue of that people. And there's a story that a Wycliffe Bible translator says of, of a translator who went somewhere distant in the jungle somewhere and met a tribe and began this arduous process of translating the New Testament into that language. And they started with Matthew. If you're familiar with Matthew's gospel, it begins with the genealogy. So this, you know, wise and shrewd translator said, I'm just going to skip chapter one for now. And just, you know, with the tribe's help, started to translate from chapter two on. And the tribe wasn't really digging it so much. They were like, oh, it was kind of interesting. Um, but once the book of Matthew is finished, the translator decided, okay, I'll go back to chapter one now and, and I'll, I'll, I'll get this part done so we have the entire book. And it was at that point that something clicked with the tribe. What was, for a moment, just an interesting story to them uh, became something different. And they said, oh, this is real history. Oh, this is about real people. This isn't make-believe. This isn't myth. This isn't legend. This isn't once upon a time there was a man named Jesus. This is dealing with real people. This is dealing with our history. And that, and that Matthew 1, this genealogy, was essential to see the salvation of this tribe. So that's one thing that genealogies do for us. They remind us that we're dealing with real people in our human history. And second, a genealogy like this that we're reading in Luke, and we'll focus on this one, of course, is that Jesus is one of us. Jesus is one of us. There are four gospel accounts, four recordings of Jesus' life and ministry, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. Um, both Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel are the only ones that, that contain a genealogy uh, that trace Jesus's particularly Jewish ancestry back through time. If you hold them side by side, Matthew and Luke, um, you'll notice that Matthew's genealogy is different from Luke in, in, in many significant ways. It traces Jesus's human uh, ancestry along a different path. 
One really significant difference that when you just eyeball it is that you see that Matthew's genealogy only goes back as far as Abraham. We meet Abraham in verse 34 of our text, and it just, you know, Matthew's reminding us that according to Jesus's human nature, Jesus is the son of Abraham. Abraham was the great patriarch, the father of the Israelite faith and people. This is partly because Matthew is writing to a primarily Jewish audience. That's his, that's his audience that he's writing to. Um, so he's trying to most likely explicitly demonstrate that uh, Jesus, is, uh, Jesus is genuinely Jewish. Uh, Jesus is, is one of you, he's telling the Jewish audience. I don't know if, you, if you've ever come across that great maritime question, uh, who's your father? This is an important question to ask when you're in the Maritimes. Someone is, when they ask you that question, it's a trap if you're not from around here because they're trying to locate you. They're trying to figure out whether or not you're a true Maritime or whether or not you have roots in the region. And so if an ancient Jew were to approach Jesus and ask that question, who's your father? Jesus, in, in one sense, could accurately respond, Abraham. Abraham's my father. And so the Jewish person would say, okay, great, you check out. <laughs> you're one of us. But notice in Luke's genealogy that we go way back further from Abraham. He goes all the way back to another great father, Father Adam, the first man, the patriarch of all living humans everywhere on earth. Luke has a different audience than Matthew. Luke is writing to a mixed Jewish and Gentile or non-Jew audience. And so Luke is at pains to demonstrate that Jesus has not simply come as the Savior of the Jewish people, but He's come as the Savior of the whole world, the entire human race. And so all people everywhere, whether you're Jewish or not, you can say, He's one of us. He's our people. Note, of course, in verse 23, something very important just to note. Uh, in 23, Luke says, Jesus, when He began His ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the Son, as was supposed of Joseph, of Mary and Joseph. As we read earlier in, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is not an ordinary man. Joseph was not Jesus's biological father. Instead, in a, in a miracle, in a mystery that we call the incarnation, the Son of God entered the virgin womb and there took humanity on himself. Jesus is the eternal Son of God, come to earth, taken on flesh, taking on humanity. And if you think of the different options laid out for God, if you were to come to the earth, there's, there's a few, right? You could come as, as a beam of light you know, or as like some sort like superhuman figure or a talking lion. Uh, but instead, the Son of God came humbly, born as a descendant of Abraham, a descendant of Adam, so that we could say he was truly one of us. Other than sin, Jesus was like you in every respect. And so this is, the, this is the broad idea that we get from this passage of Scripture we're looking at this afternoon, and the genealogy really helps us get there. Jesus identifies with and leads His people. Jesus is someone who identifies with and leads His people. Jesus knows the human experience from the inside. He knows what it's like to be people, all right? He knows us. He identifies with the kinds of things that we go through in daily life, work, and home, and, you know, social structures and economics. And so Jesus is uniquely suited and qualified to lead his people because he knows that experience from the inside. And, and we'll spend most of our time now in verses 21 and 22. And here we'll see that Jesus identifies with and leads his people in four unique ways. And this is the first. Jesus identifies with and leads his people in baptism. 
He identifies with and leads his people in baptism. Look at verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, this is referring to being baptized by John the Baptist, and when Jesus also was baptized. John, we found out last week and the week before, his primary mission was to preach a a message of baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's what he was all about, preparing the way of the Lord. And those who were coming out into the wilderness to where John was doing his work, and there was apparently flocks and droves of people hearing him preach, they came to be convicted of just that reality, is that they needed forgiveness. They needed forgiveness. And baptism, this act that, that John was, was, was doing, this is a sign and seal of forgiveness. Baptism in water, cleansing with water, it, it pictures and it promises uh, that, that our sins can be washed away that they can be utterly removed. Uh, baptism is, is a powerful symbol of that, but it is, is more than that. It is also the entry into the people of God. It's a rite of initiation. In John's day, uh, baptism was, was performed on men, women, and children. Anybody who was a non-Jew who wanted to begin the process of, of becoming uh, kind of an, an adopted son in Israel, and they would be baptized like this. Later on, the males in the family would be, would be circumcised, but then they would be instructed just as if they were a natural-born Jewish person. They would be instructed in the life and the worship of the people of God. They'd be taught the Ten Commandments and, and the Shema, and they would read sections in Deuteronomy like we just read, and they would learn about sacrifices and the ceremonial way of life. This was the way in. Uh, one commentator writes, "'For just as when a man received circumcision by that very same deed,' he became bound to fulfill the whole law. So, when a person receives baptism, that one is obliged to every condition of that covenant of which baptism is a seal. So, hear this. Baptism then, as today, carries not only the promise of forgiveness, but also the responsibility of living faithfully as God's people. I'll say it again. Baptism then, as it does today, carries not only the promise of forgiveness, but also the responsibility of living faithfully as God's people. Now, clearly, Jesus doesn't take on baptism to enter into the Jewish people, right? He's a son of Abraham. He's already in. Nor does Jesus take on baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the Son of God. He's holy. He's, He's morally blameless in every way. So why does Jesus get baptized? And this is why, at least partly. He does so to identify with and lead his people. That's his mission. That's what he, that's what he has come in the flesh to do. In baptism, Jesus obligated himself to fulfill all of God's law. He committed himself to a life of responsibility and obedience to God under God's word. Jesus Christ, who is often described as the very word of God, submitted himself to the word of God. If you're baptized today, if you receive the mark of baptism as an adult or as a child, not only is this a great blessing for you, a reminder of God's forgiveness promised to you, but it's an obligation that God gives you. Uh, uh, it's, it's, it's a responsibility to live faithfully as the people of God. And this is something that Jesus himself took upon himself. He didn't, he didn't have to obligate himself in it, but in, in order to identify with his people, he willingly took it on. He became a person just like you. And maybe this is a bit of a wake-up call for you who have been baptized. Maybe you, you took on bapti- baptism without really thinking about it. But this is, this is an act of committing yourself 
to being and to living like the people of God. When we become God's rescued people, we are called to live like rescued people, to live a life of, of love and faithfulness to God. And if you remember John the Baptist's words from verse 8 earlier in chapter 3, he warned those who were coming to receive the mark of baptism, said, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Bear fruits in keeping with your baptism. So, so you baptized adults, you little kids who have been baptized, are you living like the people of God uh, in, in public, in private? Have your words, your thoughts, your deeds, your feelings, are they being shaped in the way that God wants to shape the people of God? Well, here's, here's an encouragement for you. When we look to Jesus for help as we try to, to walk out in obedience and faithfulness, we look to somebody who understands, somebody who himself has obliged himself uh, to all of the responsibilities that God has laid on his people, and he kept them perfectly. Jesus is perfectly suited to help us uh, as we pursue this life of obedience. Um, so first, Jesus identifies with and leads his people first in baptism and second in prayer. He identifies and leads us in prayer. Look at verse 21. We see that Jesus was praying. He was communing with God the Father. He was speaking to him. This is something that we see throughout Jesus's earthly ministry, a life marked by prayer. Uh, the Gospels often record Jesus on his own early in the morning, late at night, spending extended times of prayer, often before, you know, pivotal, significant moments in his life or ministry. Uh, here at his baptism, um, later when he calls the 12 disciples in his healing ministry, before his suffering and his death, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is somebody who dedicates himself to prayer. What prayer is, prayer is this, this acknowledgement of our weakness, uh, that in ourselves um, we don't have what it takes, that we are dependent on God for help. Only humble people pray, uh, because only humble people are willing to acknowledge that they lack what only God can provide. If you don't pray, if you find yourself, you're not somebody who prays often, this might be an indicator that you are a proud person. You think that you don't have any needs. Or perhaps if you do recognize that you have needs, you think that by, by working really hard or perhaps by worry um, or you know, attempts to control the situation, that you can do it on your own without the help that God provides. Proud people don't pray. Humble people do. But if we think about it, it's almost as strange to find Jesus praying as it is to find him being baptized. Those seem like kind of strange things for the Son of God, the all-powerful, the all-knowing one, to pray. Because what does he lack? What reason does he need to be humble before God? He, he is God in the flesh. But this is what happened when Jesus took on human flesh. He became one of us. He identified with us. In his humanness, he has the exact same needs as we do. As one of us, he identifies with us and he leads us in prayer. The Heidelberg Confession, or the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, question 116, asks the question, why is prayer necessary for Christians? Why is prayer necessary for Christians? This is the answer. Because it is the chief part of thankfulness which God requires of us, and because God will give His grace and Holy Spirit only to those who ask earnestly and without ceasing, beg them of Him, and render thanks unto Him for them. See, Jesus in His humanity always turned to God in thankfulness independence. He always asked God the Father for help and the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Notice the language that the Heidelberg Catechism uses. It, it describes uh, prayer as necessary, something that is required of us. Again, this is one of the many responsibilities that are laid on us in baptism. In Luke chapter 11, and we'll get there at some point as we slowly work through Luke, Jesus is going to teach his disciples how to pray in something called the Lord's Prayer. Training in prayer is, is one of the things that Jesus is about for his disciples. He wants to become experts and proficient in prayer. Now, perhaps no topic will induce guilt in Christians like asking, how is your prayer life? Um, how, how is your prayer? How are you doing with prayer? Uh, we compare our own prayer life to commands we find in the Scripture, like, like Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5, where he says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And then we reflect on ourselves, and we realize that in, instead of praying without ceasing, it's been hours or perhaps days since we've had an extended time in prayer. Instead of thanking God in all circumstances, we have grumbled, and we've complained, and we've worried in all circumstances. And so this command, this responsibility to live a life of prayer, um, instead of you know, feeling like a, like a joyful command, it feels like, like a weight, <laughs> something that's dragging us down, that makes us feel guilty. But I want you to see that, that all Christian responsibilities are also incredible privileges to us. If you're a Christian, friends, you get to approach God your Father at all times. You are invited into this kind of life. You are so loved, so welcomed by God uh, that, that He is never busy for you. He is never tired of hearing your voice come to Him. He's never annoyed when you bring requests to Him, when you ask for help. He delights in this. Uh, there's a story of, a, of, a, of an old seminary uh, professor and principal, a guy named Charles Hodge, who was in charge of Princeton uh, when, it was, when it was primarily a seminary. And, uh, you know, busy guy writing systematic theology involved in politics and church stuff and, you know, leading a, leading a, a very um, big institution. And in Charles Hodge's office, on the front of it, there was a door which is for his students, and that was sturdily locked, you know, several bolts where the students can come in whenever they wanted. They had to have an appointment. They could only come at certain designated times. But at the back of the office, there was kind of the, like this, this little screen door that a baby could, you know, breathe on and open up. And that door was designed for his children because Hodge just had this policy. Whenever my kids need me, no matter what I'm doing, if in my office, they can come to me. I'm, I'm never too busy for them. They're always welcome. And if you are God's child, this is good news for you. God the Father has a screen door on the back of his office for you. You get to come to him whenever you want. He, he welcomes you. He has designed life in this way where, where he is never too busy for you. And Jesus, the unique son of God, he demonstrates for us throughout his entire ministry, and in this passage in particular, demonstrates a life of never ceasing prayer. So Jesus identifies with us and leads us in baptism, in prayer, and third, in spirit dependence. Look at verses 21 and 22. The heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in bodily form like a dove. Jesus, according to his humanity, was dependent on the Spirit's power and help. Here, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, rests on Jesus in a visible way. 
all of Jesus's ministry, everything that he did, uh, all of his preaching, all of his ministry, all of his helping, all of his encouragement, all of his prayer, it was all fueled and powered by the Spirit. And this is also the calling for all Christians who follow after Jesus's way. Uh, Romans chapter 8, it's a really important chapter talking about this life in the Spirit, what, what it means to, to be like Jesus and to follow Him. And Paul, who writes Romans 8, he makes this point very carefully. He, he makes it clear, you cannot live out, you can't carry out the calling that God has given you at baptism on your own. You can't live a life of faithful obedience and prayer without supernatural help. The Christian life lived isn't one where you just grit your teeth, that you grind your way through it. Rather, the Christian life is a life of dependence, of admitting our own weakness. And so Paul, when he writes Romans 8, he calls this do-it-yourself approach living in the flesh and the life that's empowered and helped by God living by the Spirit. And this is what he writes in Romans 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Jesus identifies with and leads us in the life of the Spirit. We can look to Jesus and we can learn from Him how the Christian life is to be lived. Again, this is a life of prayer, a love of faithful obedience, and it's not reserved only to the superpowered among us to those who are fiercely independent, who can get things done, who can climb you know, Mount Everest before breakfast. Rather, the Christian life is for the humble, for people who admit that they desperately need help. They need power outside of themselves. Uh, they don't try to live a life according to the flesh. They live a life according to the Spirit. And so this is an encouragement to you who are struggling in the Christian life. Ask for the Spirit's help. Ask to be filled with the Spirit. Make this a regular part of your prayers. Whenever a kiddo comes up uh, for communion, if they haven't been admitted to the table yet, I, I bless them. I put my hand on them and I say, Father, will you fill them with your Holy Spirit? And part of this is, is salvation. I want them to come to faith, to trust in Jesus as their Savior. But the other part of it is I want them to live a life of power, to, to live a life with the presence of God in them, that the Spirit would rest on them as it does here on Jesus. This is the Christian life, a life of spirit dependence. Okay, this is our last one. Jesus identifies with and leads us in baptism, in prayer, and in spirit dependence. And finally, he leads us into God's own pleasure, into God the Father's pleasure. If Jesus was only our pattern, you know, just, just this perfect model that we're to imitate, we wouldn't really consider that good news. Jesus, we, we could just say he's a dispenser of good advice. He's a fantastic model. Jesus, you know, he, he came to the earth to say, hey, this is how you do things. Look at me. Uh, but that wouldn't be good news to us. But this is the good news. Jesus identifies with and leads his people into God the Father's pleasure. One of the most beautiful passages that we've read in Luke, uh, we see here in verse 22, the heavens opened and a voice came from heaven you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. First, this is just like a, a perfect passage if you want to demonstrate or see the nature of God, this great, again, profound mystery, God being triune, three persons in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All, the, whole, the whole band shows up in this passage together in love and perfect relationship. Second, 
I want you to hear in this passage the love and the affection of a perfect father for his son. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Note that this is before Jesus' public ministry has even started. Right? Jesus hasn't preached one sermon. He hasn't healed one single solitary soul. Jesus is still years and years away from his climactic work of giving himself on the cross, body and blood, for us sinners and for our sin, and yet the Father is pleased with him. You know, what joy and comfort that must have brought Jesus before he enters into his ministry, to know that he is loved and welcomed by his Father. I think, I think so many people, so many of us, we haven't experienced that kind of love from a parent, but we desperately long for it. We crave it. We desire deeply to be loved in this way. And thankfully, we can experience this kind of love. Because in baptism, Jesus identifies with and he leads us so that we can experience the Father's good pleasure. See, in baptism, not only does Jesus identify with us, but we begin to identify with Jesus. When, whenever a Christian is baptized, they're baptized in the formula, we baptize you in the name of the Father, the name of the Son, and the name of the Holy Spirit. We actually take those names onto ourselves. We join the Christian family. Again, Paul, in Galatians chapter 3, he puts it this way, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized in Christ have put on Christ. If you've been baptized in Christ, you have put on Christ. And so this is why Jesus is good news for us and not simply good advice. When by faith we are in Christ Jesus, we get to hear God the Father say to us, you are my son, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. In baptism and by faith, we are in Jesus, and he identifies with and he leads his people into, the God, into God the Father's good pleasure. If you feel like a train wreck this, this afternoon, a mess of sin and guilt, you, you, you fought with your spouse on the way in, you, you find that you're a poor example of faithful living at work and in the community. You don't know how to lead yourself spiritually. You don't know how to lead your family spiritually. It's been days since you last prayed. If you are in Christ by faith and through baptism, God the Father looks at you and he says, you are my beloved son. You are my dear daughter. With you, I am well pleased. You are loved and welcomed by God the Father because of Christ not because of what you produce and accomplish, not, not by how good you've been at obeying or praying this week, but because Jesus is the beloved Son of God, come for you, who in kindness took on flesh and was born into this world, became one of us, gave his body and blood for us and for our sins and was raised to new life. He did this for this particular purpose so that we could be so identified with him that we would experience God the Father's pleasure through him. This is really the invitation to the Christian faith. It's to admit to God that you need cleansing, that you need forgiveness. And this is the invitation to come and receive baptism, uh, to, to, to experience the repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And if you see that in Jesus, if you see Jesus being baptized uh, for you um, and you being baptized in him, you get to experience this now and forever the pleasure of God the Father. So, so may you now love and trust and be shaped by every word that's in the Bible, even the parts that you're tempted to skip over. 
May you praise God for sending a Savior for you who identifies with you and leads you. May you live a life in keeping with your baptism and bear fruits in keeping with, with that repentance. May you always rejoice. May you pray without ceasing and give thanks in all circumstances. May you be filled with the Spirit and so have the mind of life and peace. And may you, by faith in Christ, enter into the Father's pleasure and know that because of Christ, He is well pleased with you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for sending your Son to us. We ask that you would give us this great gift of faith and repentance so that we can trust in him and be found in him, not having a righteousness, a right standing of our own, but that which is received as a gift through Jesus. Father, I pray that you would, um, you would help us to live a life of dependence on you. Um, help us to admit our need. Father, thank you for loving us, for sending your son for us. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.